There we go. Hello. Hello, Hello. Jeff. How you doing, Paul? Uh, good to see you again. Can you, mate? New venue today. This this is a, we are in an old Nokia haunt. It's a very, very historic building, actually, in, in Bristol called the Old Fish Market. The Old Fish Market, yes. What street's this? Where are we? Um, Baldwin Street. Baldwin Street. Bourbon Street, there we go. And we've got a regular, regular guest of ours, I've become a regular guest, Nigel Baker. Bristol, Bristol based Agile Bear, Nigel Baker. <laughs> Morning, Agile Hello, Bear. Nigel. Hello, good to see you all. Um, it's far too long between these podcasts, I think. <laughs> you know, it's far too long. Do you think? Yeah, you I should think do more so. often. Every, every two I think, weeks. I, I think it's I should, a long time to wait, isn't it? I think I should get me on more often, really. Um, <laughs> what's it, reoccurring guest rather than special guest? Lovely to see you guys again. It's very good, it's nice to have you. What are you drinking? What did, what did uh, I think Jeff bought this round, so what, what's yeah. he bought you there, Nigel? Uh, Jeff, it is you, a... bought you a pint of Cornish Orchard Cider. Lovely. Fizzy and cold. And Jeff, what have you got? I'm on the... It's called Renegade. It's by the Beard Brewery. Beard? Beard, as in... Facial hair. Facial Two hair. E's. But, um, not but it has... A, and their logo is facial hair. And is it particularly hoppy? You do like a hoppy ale? Well, I tried a few. I took, took, took advantage of their opportunity to try them. Oh, so you tried some? You tried yeah, some yeah, of the I tried a few. And this was the one I and yeah. did inspect. Inept and adapt. <laughs> and um, this is a hoppy one with a bit of a citrusy flavour, with a little bit of gas. And you're straight on the vodka today. I'm straight, <laughs> yeah, straight under the hard stuff. I have a drinking problem. Happy days. Yeah. <laughs> vodka, just a plain old vodka and diet coke for me. Oh, cheers. Cheers, everyone. Cheers, Nigel. Uh, nice cheers. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. Love to see you guys. So, so yeah. what's, uh, what's happening in your world at the moment, Nigel? As I, as I guess, anything you, any particular topic you've got close to your heart at the moment? Particular topics close to my heart. Do you know what? I've been quite interested in uh, product ownership. Okay. Actually. Tell us more. Tell you more. Uh, well, I just, I think uh, we were having a chat. I'm not sure. Uh, whether it was on, on a podcast or whether it was just in a pub normally, <laughs> but about um, product owners and how people treat product owners, how they've been treated both contextually in the literature, how they're treated in real life, you know, what we would like them to be and what they actually are. Yeah. I think um, someone, so maybe Newport said about product owners in some of the literature being treated quite adversarially. Yeah. You know, I, the opponent, the, the enemy. enemy. Yeah. yeah which must be um, like a bull the enemy, wrestled with and... and the enemy is a software development. Yeah. And, um, and some literature treats them like they are just part of the... just, just, a, just a, a, a integral part of the team, no special, no different to everyone else. Yeah. I actually and I, remember... Sorry to interrupt, actually. Sorry, you carry on. Oh, sorry to interrupt. I didn't mean to interrupt. <laughs> but it just... It was How rude! It reminded me of... of um, when you say adversarial, yeah. I remember actually, years and years ago, Ken Schwaber introducing the Scrum Master role as that mediator between the yeah. two competing yeah. forces. Yeah. I, I, I've completely forgotten about that description, so you just. Yeah, yeah. Your memory has been reawakened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this, I think it's, um, I always say it's a bit of a journey, but it is a bit of a journey. I think I get too worried that you get these squishy scrum masters who don't fight the good fight, but also you get people treating products and it's like they're Darth Vader. Yeah. You know, and yet some are, <laughs> unfortunately yeah. or fortunately. Um, 
but I, I just find it interesting some of the tactics people use to try and avoid that you know the classic is BA as product owner you know squidgy part of the team friends of the team because they are one of the team BA as business analyst rather than BA breakfast BA breakfast would be a better <laughs> product owner because he pities the fool that doesn't use those features and he, and he, but he won't fly won't go on any planes at all no planes no, but generally that sort of that seems to be almost a we the rise of the product owner proxy, which yeah, seems to yeah. be a well-established job. In fact, two people on the course recently uh, said to me, hi, and I asked them what they're, yeah. as part of the introduction, asked them what they do. Yeah. Two people in the course said, hi, I'm a product owner proxy. Like it was a, like, you know, a job, a, a job title. That was their yeah. official job title. I'm a proxy product owner. I wonder whether that's... Uh you know, level one and level two is a product owner. And level three is something else. Product manager. Maybe it's part of their career progression path. Maybe it is. Yeah, yeah. career yeah. development. Yeah, that's where you start. You start as, as a proxy. Level minus one is BA. Business yeah. than BA brackets. But yeah. it's certainly when I was at Nokia, the the, the natural fit was seemed to be BA equals yeah product owner. Yeah. yeah. Or to try and translate yeah. that role into yeah. some, someone who's available in the team. But doesn't really have the authority or the clout to actually make real business. And that's the big issue: is the authority is the main thing. You know, everything else the team can do. Frankly, yeah. you know, team can write stories, can you know, talk to the customer, talk to real customers. Team can do a lot of that legwork. They just need to have someone who can actually say yes, no. You know, the old man from Del Monte adverts off of TV many years ago. The man from Del Monte used to pineapple and thumbs up or thumbs down. The man you know. from Del Monte says yes. The man yeah. from Goodly says all right. Apologies that, to any of our Birmingham-based listeners there for Jeff Watts. To any racist you, Jeff Watts. Any of you, you unaware of the subtleties of, of British accents, Jeff made? Is that a Lenny Henry joke? Or, or a Jasper Carrot joke? If you don't know who Lenny Henry and Jasper Carrot are, don't bother. Google them then. Don't, don't bother. Yeah, so, but any partnership in general, I think, I, I see a lot of knock-on effects because of proxies or weak product ownership. Isn't that also a bit symptomatic of larger organisations? Yeah, yeah, lack of... Trying, yeah. trying to establish a, a format and a structure that fits their setup rather than asking the real big question, who, yeah. who is who is yeah. the actual product yeah. owner, who yeah. needs to make those decisions yeah. and, I, and I why think, aren't they available? I think product owner can be a new role in many companies. It's, product it man- it's basically product manager, but they don't have product management. No. <laughs> those are project managers, those are PMO, those are BAs, but no actual people with that Certainly product in, management title. In Nokia, we had product managers who, in fact, they were really good people who knew a lot about the product, but they just didn't have the time. Yeah, They didn't have the time to be available to the teams five days a week. Yeah. What else would you want? Well, they would be doing the other stuff that product managers do, like speaking to customers, setting yeah. deadlines, you know, trying to establishing strategy and that sort of thing. Well, that's, that's my opinion. Generally, the amount of product managers in organisations are far too low. So they have a massively overinflated project management project management group to compensate. Yeah. And what we need to do is get that product management group growing. Now that is true. That's happening. I, I, there's, uh, I think I saw again. I don't want to be careful making up numbers, but I saw I saw last year the growth job in IT was product manager. Was it? Yeah, which is a great thing, you know. And I um, trained someone from one of our ex companies. We always worked for BT many years ago. It comes up all the time when we chat. Um, I came. I, I trained someone from one of those BT. And going back into Agile a bit, they said, 
and uh, the interesting thing there was he was a genuine product manager a genuine product manager doing all that job properly so actually product owner for him was a pretty snug fit you know, to what he was actually doing just a bit more engagement with the team but it wasn't alien or very different to what he was doing in the past but that's always my issue because I think we get loads of knock-on effects there about you know proxies then maybe like a project manager proxies like the product owner which is pretty, pretty poor then maybe like a developer plays Scrum Master, and you end up with like a really fudged mix. And what I, when I spoke to these people in this course that said they're product owner properties, they were still largely being business analysts, I'll be completely yeah. honest. And then I've got no problem, I think, in fact, most Scrum teams of that kind of, of, a, of a decent size of it and uh, that kind of order need, yeah. need probably someone more dedicated to business analysis in it. Yeah. Because I think there's probably too much for a product owner to do in, in a larger organization. So I've got no problem with them delegating some of those responsibilities to someone in the team, but don't label, don't don't put that product owner label on them, yeah. because you just dilute the whole idea of the yeah. role. Well, the one thing they don't do is own the product. Exactly. So it's why like give them that label? Yeah, it's like calling someone a project manager, but they don't actually manage the product. No project. Um, well, what's interesting to me is um, so a, few, a while ago now, come how long ago it was? Uh, Agile, Kumru, Kumru, you were at uh, Paul did a storytelling session, which. Was, covering up his ears was quite good um, but I think that storytelling aspect so overlooked a lot of people focus on like the story formats who, what, why or who or what or just why and lose sight of the interaction the communication the back and forth yeah well um, for me the product owner will be someone that can actually translate the meaning of what the work is mm. to people that are actually doing yeah. it. Now, I find it quite difficult to simulate that in workshops, you know, I get away from real work. So I've been trying recently, with to greater and less success, to, um, basically getting, getting a workshop, getting everyone splitting into devs and product owners. One product owner to one developer. Then I'll give the product owner the challenge, which is your job is to produce a work of art, to product manage a work of art, okay? And I'm going to give you the topic because I'm your boss and that you don't get to choose everything you build, but within that you can decide how you work. And I'll give them just insane things off the top of my head. Right. So like, I want you to give me a tiger with a sniffly cold. I want you to give me a dyslexic octopus. Right. Uh, and just insane, real creative, insane stuff, right? And I say, okay, what do you want? I said, that's your decision. <laughs> From here on in, I just want it colourful and fun, go. And the product they have to draw it. Right? Yeah, the developers have to draw it, but the product owners don't. But the product owners have to decide how much they communicate, what they communicate. Do they let the developers run with the ball quite a lot, you know, and come up with themselves? Or do they sort of really micromanage it and say, this is all the acceptance criteria I want? Do they do mock-ups, you know, beforehand? Do they do they experiment? Where do the ideas come from in the, in the um, exercise? Do they come up with them up front or do they emerge during the exercise? exercise and it's really interesting it gets really um, a polarizing opinions because some people obviously don't like the idea of drawing silly things in a training course they're basically a bit serious and oh, I'm, a, I'm a product owner I, I need to write stories I need to draw a, a heartbroken penguin and some of them get the idea it's all in the debrief get the idea of, okay what, what we're trying to do we're trying to simulate the fuzziness of a creative act where does the idea come from a lot of people don't know like I saw once these guys drew a heartbroken penguin a penguin with a broken heart like a little heart drawn with a crack down the middle yeah. who came up with that idea both looked at each other and went uh, yeah. they didn't actually know it didn't actually matter who came up with the idea of course the fact that just by working together back and forth interacting communicating they built something kind of cool and I think um, it, it doesn't always work. Some people just sort of draw a pencil diagram and sort of give up in five minutes, which is a bit unfortunate. But it, it's the closest one. Yeah, some people are just like, uh, you know, they're like, okay, that's good enough. Probably don't feel the heat. 
you know, they'll just go, yeah, that'll do. Byro, it'll do. Right. Some could really get into it. But the idea is, just to wrap up on this, is that I'm, it's very difficult to simulate a feeling of what it's like to be a polytonal right in the middle of the experience. We can train and coach as much as we do about the actual high-level topics, but when you're on the ground explaining something to someone, and as you're talking, you realise you don't understand it either. Or, or, you, or you, you do understand it, but you can't articulate it. That's something I think some people miss with this role. It becomes like a Jira story-generating machine. It reminds me of a, uh, a course I did. I think it was a Prototonal course. And uh, you're both familiar with the exercise with 59 minutes from. Yeah. And I sometimes I'll do that course at the beginning, mainly just to get people talking and just to outline the scrum process. Created by the late great Gene Tobacco, by the way. Yes, yeah. and credit to you for that. Super for Gene for Gene, by the way. Chinkar glasses, Gene. Thank you, to Gene. Um, and one of the, um, I usually do a debrief at the end, and I usually do it as a debrief where myself plays the product owner and say, give me some feedback on how I played the role. So, we debriefed the exercise um, basically around the question, and the question, the question came up on how prescriptive should the product owner be? Okay. So, oh, telephone. Um, no, but the question in terms of whether a, should a product owner set out this is exactly what I want, in terms of even, even in terms of these are the acceptance criteria that I demand, yeah. or should a product owner say, Here's a problem, go and solve it. Check out the hook on the DD revolver. <laughs> I think a lot of that depends on how confident they are that they know exactly what they want. If they know exactly what they want and they know what is right and what is wrong, then why leave anything to chance? But, but if they don't, then you're but, but the issue, to prescribe something. But there's also but the issue of some people are very confident and wrong. Well, yeah. But that's, but that's, that's, that's and are you Are you undermining the, a team's creativity by nailing down but sometimes creativity isn't what you want because if, if, if you're in an environment where there is a right and a wrong answer and you go off in a different direction just because you're being creative then you're wasting time and money but most of the environments where scrum is useful that's not the case no but there will be times when it is the case so the answer I've given to that question is yes <laughs> it's both isn't it that's the trouble you know it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a range Sometimes prescriptive correct, as Jeff said, sometimes it's the, the worst thing possible. Um, it's finding that balance with the team. That's why I think that people overlook that idea of inspecting and adapting, you know. Actually, it's about your, your methods, the tone, as well as the product itself. Use a few squids to find out the right balance for you. There's different team to team, company to company. So, why not run a few cycles and see, okay, this much detail, how do you like it? This much detail, how do you like it? Find the right level. Yeah. But even with the most mundane, boring, prescriptive work, I, I still think there's ways of being creative about giving teams a bit more of a, a bit more bandwidth to yeah. talk around it. Yeah. Slightly related topic, but slightly not. Do you need slack in your budget to be able to do scrum? You need slack in your life. Not to scrum, just to do anything properly. If, if there's no breathing space to think, in thinking work, that's really bad. And getting things wrong. Yeah. Did you mean from a product owner angle, though, in yeah. terms of trying experimentation? Yeah. yeah. It's a bit of a financial gamble, isn't it, to do scrum? There's obviously a way, of it's a way of managing your risk as well, but you're actually bringing in a little bit more risk as well. Well, I don't know, because they're saying, um, playing roulette or something, if you gamble all your money on red and black, 
or is it safer to gamble little bets on little numbers? I don't know. I imagine you know, there could be an argument made that you're only taking one risk red or black and you're doing lots of risks with lots of little numbers. Mm-hmm. But the fact of the matter is, it's a lot of money to put on a 50-50 coin toss. Mm-hmm. I think the idea of... Um, but I agree with you that they need to have space and understand that the happy path isn't true. There needs to be some breathing space and effort to try things and get feedback. And they have to budget for that. I don't mean it's more expensive, it just means they discover the right thing. But sometimes that's that. not even a product specific slack, is it? That could be around giving the team some bandwidth to try yeah. a creative yeah. solution to solving a lot of yeah. technical debt, or it could be something, a tool that they create that allows them to integrate more frequently. Or well, even things like, so I, that presentation I did, of whatever it was a while ago at Agile Kumri, um, I was mentioning patterns there, and one pattern was the bake-off, you know, set-based design basically, have running a few different ideas and then picking one of those ideas to go forward with. And some product owners have to make decisions before they have all the available information. They, why not put a bit of budget aside to do that sort of parallel activities? Okay, let's try a few different options out, mm. actually build some of them, some bits of it, and get some feedback from reality rather than what I hope is true right at the start. That takes a lot of courage to do, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, a lot of people underestimate the amount of courage it takes to be a product owner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. They have, to, they have to really put their neck on the line, don't they? Yeah. And then hand in their pocket. Yeah. Yeah. <coughs> Those two things are very linked, aren't they? Your neck is on the line with the hands in your pocket, yeah. you know. As we come back to what you were saying before, the, before earlier, uh, when we were discussing, you know, uh, proxies, the hand isn't in their pocket, yeah. and is their neck really on the line? It's also, you see quite often that product owners don't, even when they're called the product owner, there's only one of them, they still don't have visibility or ownership of their budgets. So oh, yeah. that's yeah. probably the number one thing they, they hear. Yeah. They don't know how much, yeah. they can't make a value-based decision because they don't know how much money it's costing yeah. to actually do something or actually retrieve the revenue. And that, that links into the other side is they don't actually know how much money it's going to make. No. The, the understanding of value and return is weak in most organisations. You know, A lot they, of people always come back to me saying, oh, that's really hard to do, yeah. to define business value in yeah. some kind of measurable, comparable way. And I say, yes, but I think it's your job to do it. Yeah. If you can't, you can't run the business. You can't work out how you're going to make money. Mm. It's not magic, you know. Magic Sometimes things. it's not about revenue. For some, it's not about always about pounds and pence. Yeah. It could be internal morale you know, you're trying to develop an internal system to, yeah. to book people's time whatever it is it's a different value system isn't it customer satisfaction in terms of Twitter and Facebook yeah you know so they start off not trying to make money but building a great experience yeah they make money later in the experience there's loads of ways of looking at value but they need to have a bit more ruthless work on that Spend a bit of time understanding what is value for them or what isn't I think they'll avoid it. They just go, okay, these are the requirements I've been given. So here was a, this was a big um, topic of discussion in not just the, the, a course recently, but many courses I've run. Something I think Jeff and I have discussed before is the product owner a full time role? It depends. Uh, yeah, well, yes, but not necessarily full time talking to a scrum team. 
But there's a whole heap of stuff they should be doing on the business side to actually make it work. But they're still being a product owner. That's yeah. my point. Is that people would yes, say? Yes, 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 very much so. People would yeah. also argue that yeah. I've got a day job, but I can't yes. also. I can't. I've got to do be a product owner as well. Yeah. That does seem to be fading a bit now really? for me, anyway. Yeah, less the the part timers, more proxies, less part time. I'm seeing myself. By virtue, yeah, by virtue, surely a pro- proxy is part time. A part time product owner. Because they're not doing the the full. The they are doing role. the full role, just just thin. I guess it's you know. Well, I, well, no, I don't they, think they, they, they are. They are doing the full role. I think business analysts are writing stories, but they're not analysing value at all. They're to get a given requirement. That, that's a proxy for me, not a not a a um, what was the other definition you had? A part timer. You know. The person who's doing the rest of it, who's got the authorities to make the decisions, sign off yeah. the briefings, yeah. that, that they're just coming in now and again, oh yeah, okay, fine, so they're part-time. They're person. chicken, not pig. The proxy yeah. is trying to, to fill some of the, the stuff that's not there. Yeah. Yeah. I see a lot of that. I think people assume a product owner is a part-time responsibility because they don't have the full accountability for it. Yeah, I can see that. See that, I guess. Nice music playing in the background if you can't hear it. Who is it? Um, Lovely night. Lovely <coughs> night? You do like Not a bit so nice. I like she did a song, um, I'm a Survivor. Oh. Um, yeah. Soul Survivor's quite good by Beverly Knight, I seem to remember. Didn't we go see Beverly Knight at a concert? Who was me? Vanessa Feltz. Yeah, yeah Vanessa Feltz was there with, 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 a, with a member she was going out with and now was married to. Fats and small. Remember the facts and small, but not facts and not small, but the mm in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> she was, she was a, a, yeah, that was in the, London. Yeah. Jeff took us to some yeah. dingy nightclub in the middle dingy of nowhere. It was a private <laughs> special. How did you get invited to that? I can't that? remember now, but I found out about it. Yeah, it, was a, it wasn't an advertised thing. You couldn't buy tickets for it like, on the market. That was in, uh, in Holborn, was it? In <coughs> Holborn. Underground club somewhere, wasn't it? Yeah. I can vaguely remember. It's it. good though. I, I like things like that. Mm. It's only about 50 people there, isn't it? Yeah, it was that Very exclusive. Yeah. Very exclusive. Including Jeez. Vanessa Phelps. Yeah. Uh, again, you don't know Phelps. 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 With a Z. Phelps. If you want to look her up, feel free to do so. Uh, Google her. Um, Okay, so product owners. Have we done product owners to death? I think we have, yeah. Are product owners owned. What else do we want to talk about today? What's, what's on our collective minds today? Pokemon Go. Um, I've downloaded that yesterday. Pokemon Go. Um, this has come out recently. Um, I'm not going to give any time span on this. But it's one thing that makes me worried. Because the first real thing that's come out that's made me feel, oh, disconnected. Uh, you know, uh, 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 sort of, what is it, an alternate reality or enhanced reality game. No. Do you know what Pokemon Go is, no. It's a Ask game, a Nintendo game. You, on, you can download it for free on your smartphone. You and basically, it's <coughs> GPS um, uh, orientated. So, wherever you are, you basically walk the streets and you can find monsters to capture. Okay. And you fire little balls at them and catch them and collect them. It's okay. Pokemon. You are aware of Pokemon, the concept yeah, of Pokemon. Yeah, it's a cartoon, isn't it? Yeah, and again, based on Nintendo, Nintendo games. games. Nintendo. Basically, you, you capture monsters, breed them up, fight them against other monsters. Like a card game, Tamagotchi. essentially. Yeah, that sort of thing. Tamagotchi crossed with Street Fighter. Okay. Um, 
it's a good thing, it's a bad thing? It's well, it's very big at the moment, but the, the point I was being up was not so much about that one particular game, it was that something's come up that feels very um, different and alien to me that I'm struggling to understand. Okay. Why? Uh, you just explained it to me, so how do you not understand it? Just, it? just the, the, the ethos behind that, wandering the streets, finding... Kids, adults playing this. Gets kids out of their sofas rather I get that. I get but there's that also been stories of kids walking across roads to catch these things. Okay. Because you can the idea is that you see them on your camera and you can actually visualise where you are. And it says like, oh there's a there's a monster on the road out there outside the pub and you, the kids have been walking straight to, to uh, I'm them. I'm assuming the game data is procedurally generated. So someone hasn't wandered the world finding the best spots for Tamagotchi. Yeah. They have like some code somewhere that work out where they're gonna put them. Um, but the point was just, you know, um, my, my, my fear of some um, agile people is that they change once. They go through a cultural change where they go, wow, what I used to do in the past is wrong. This new thing is good. And then they latch onto the new thing with the same verve they latch onto the old thing. Like, Scrum's a great example of this. People say, okay, like, Scrum, yeah, I'm old oh, waterfall stuff, bad. Ah, Scrum's amazing, yes. And then that's all they can think about. That's their mental model completely. They can't handle other ideas or new ideas. I know Scrum's the answer. Whatever the question is, Scrum's the answer. You know, and uh, I think uh, that's my concern with some uh, coaches. Or well, not even coaches, level uh, below. Like some Scrum masters have been doing it a while now. They seem to have the same fervor for the current now status quo scrum or something they used to have for the old status quo but they have the same mindset issues i.e. they can't see new stuff mm. and i think now the point of agility is embracing new ideas you know the world changes constantly new models new, new not new techniques but new, so new ideas your, come across what's your reaction to pokemon go that I, I should actually understand that or that i should reject it well, my first reaction was reject right unconditionally without emotional reaction no this is new and alien and wrong it's not my super mario it's not brothers the old way. yeah it's the wrong way yeah. it's new and thus wrong <coughs> and then after a while thing i think actually no no of course it's not that's just the instinct reaction to change you know i've got to understand it maybe it isn't for me maybe it is but i need to discover more about it and investigate it more mm. so if i do rule it out as something i want to play Can i rule it out from 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 knowledge I'll, my phone, yeah. I'll show you we'll play it on the way back to the train station oh, that will make uh, a great podcast i imagine yeah great great visual stuff here that yeah. you can't see on the uh, yeah uh where is it so paul's now very slowly looking it up yeah so but it puts you on a map this yeah. is me and it shows you where you can look at I think where your nearest creatures are and you can go and find it basically you walk around and then when you spot one it will come it goes to camera and you can actually see it oh right. if you've not got this you've not tried it yet no so what's that there that's uh you get these little spinning things gives you a little prizes and stuff so Paul is currently spinning St. Nicholas's Church to get some prizes. But it says the curfew bell still rings at 9pm. Where did they get that information from? I don't know. It's very clever. So it's got the map, map layout on it and you can kind of see what's... That's Queen Square over there. Let me see that. So it's sort of um, enhanced reality games. I think it's a great idea to get kids out of the house, etc. You know, I'm not sure I want my kids wandering Bristol City Centre at night. But it's the first time Nintendo have really gone kind of off off their trusted console route, platforms, yeah, I'm not embrace, embrace the smartphone, the smartphone device. But it's interesting, change, change happens, change even happens to people who are change agents. And I think that's um, 
I remember when, again, far too many BT stories, but we always used to work there, and so we always go back to them. Do you remember, guys, when we were BT, the people I had most issues with BT were not the guys who had been there 30 years, but the guys who had been there 8 years, and were brought in as the new thing, yeah. 8 years prior. Okay. And now something else is superseding them, and they were the ones who were struggling. Yeah. People like um, Tony, Dan Exeter. Yeah. Tony had been in the company man and boy 40 years, you know. He, he loved the company, you know, at the time anyway. And so when change came along, he was like, okay, yeah, I'll change again. I've I changed a dozen times. Tony listens to this. I'll be interested if he did. Tony, if you're, if you know who you are, you know who you reach are. Reach out to us, Tony. Reach out to us, Tony. Um, send us an email or a text or whatever um, <laughs> from your locale. But it's but it's the idea of that person being more, funny enough, being more comfortable with change. They've seen so much change yeah. compared to someone who <laughs> compared to someone who um, was the change. Cameron said it recently when he resigned. You know, mm. you know he said to Blair, the yeah, we said you were the future once, yeah. but now I was the future once, yeah, and that's yeah, I think, yeah. a difficult transition for some people. Do you think you change? You've changed much. Yeah. Not enough. Not but, enough. But, but I have changed, yes. What, I've mainly, would, what would enough look like? Well, less weight, more hair. <laughs> <laughs> Generally. That's uh, too much now, isn't it? Oh, and a bit, a bit it's slimmer. Reduce my, um, my personal velocity uh, or personal <laughs> weight gain. Uh, no, but there's many things there that I would. The training, uh, I presume, what you train has changed a lot over the years. Usually, usually. The issue, I often keep the slides very similar. I know a lot of people are slide maniacs who keep their slides constantly changing. Mm. I have to keep my slides quite static, but change how I present them and what I say about them. Mm. Interestingly, uh, yeah, that's changed usually over the years as I've learnt more, as I've done more, as as the industry's moved, as we've all collectively discovered more. I think that's interesting as well. How do you but think the, your message has changed over the years? Message changed over the years. I think I am uh, less serious, but more vervent. I think that's the word. I think I'm less not idealistic. That's the wrong word. I'm, I'm more. I'm as a person because I've seen people do so many things wrong constantly, the same thing again and again. I'm quite strong on that. I know, guys. Honestly, I've seen this go wrong again. You know really watch out but personally I try not to get heated by it I'll be like don't worry it's okay you know you'll go through it that's okay when you've gone through it you want to look at this sort of thing so it's a uh, if I tend to get angry now on things that make uh, for laughs or for shits and giggles like Jira motherfucking Jira sorry but um, generally I don't actually hate Jira that much but it's just annoying um, uh, for comedy games what about yourself Jeff? But we, well, well, not Jeff. Um, Paul, why don't you tell us about yourself? Because Jeff's well, not going to. It's just, well, I mean, that's this whole prompt and thing. But we are, in, in our jobs now as coaches or as trainers, we are, in, a, in effect, telling stories, aren't we? That's all we're doing. Yeah. And I say to a lot of people that I co-train with every now and again that what makes you an engaging person to listen to or that you hear a better trainer in my view, this is just my opinion, is your ability to share experiences and tell stories about what you've done. That's what that's what yeah. people want to yeah. listen to. Yeah. They want to hear about the good and the bad. They want to hear about your experiences. Yeah. They want they don't just want you to spout from a predictable uh, slide set that you've pre-prepared oh. and delivered time and time again. They or want a twelve page document. Yeah. They want you to actually tell you some life experiences. Yeah. About the pain as well as the, the good stuff. 
I agree. I agree. I was giving that bit of advice to someone just the other day. So you know, people don't, people haven't come here to hear you quote from the scrum guide. No. You know, you can't. But a lot of trainers goals. still do that. They they, oh, yeah. they they'll call back to their their default seems to be well the scrum guide says you should do this. Yeah. The scrum guide says you should do that. The book says this. Yeah. It's got to be your real life. Um, so it's a di- but it is a difficult thing as a trainer endorsed by the scrum alliance that you have to t- well, to an extent toe the line. But it, it's, for me, it's more. There's too many people out there who, and I could fall into this category where training is their living now. Yeah, yeah. They do any coaching at all. None of the, the talking to people, none of that stuff. The reality is just the theory, you know. And I, I think some people have been there all the time, and I think you've got this balancing act, you know. Too much theory makes you a, a zealot. Too much reality makes you cynical. Um, you got to have a balance out between Again, two. I've done a co- lot of co-training recently, and the, the better people I've co-trained with are the ones that can actually talk from their own experiences. And they, they people listen more, people engage more with when they, when it's believable. Yeah, a lot of people are very good at making up stories. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, they're not believable. Well, exactly. So you've got to make, you, people can yeah. generally yeah. sniff. Yeah. It's, a, it's like a persona. It's funny. So I say, base persona on real people if you can, because mm. nothing's as, as fake as real. You know, you wouldn't wake that up. Those people, you know, no. that, that didn't happen, but it happened. You know, yeah. compared to the sort of bland, um, made up story. Truth stranger yeah. than friction. <laughs> friction. That was Jeff's attempt at a joke. Well, Please now laugh on the podcast. Jeff will need this laugh. <laughs> That's uh-huh. not my joke. That's a. Well-used phrase. There's two stranger than fiction, not two stranger than fiction. Don't worry. It's the Sucker AM game. Joe, It's like gold dust. Sound the glitter. It's like gold dust. You can edit these out. This is corny gold, Jeff. My sights are split. So come on, Jeff, let's hear some more. Um, Before we finish up, let's hear some more um, comedy anecdotes. (laughs) So the question you asked me, back at you. What was the question? How, how has it changed over the years? Have you changed? Have you changed? Have you changed? Yeah. I care less. Yeah. Yeah, I, I used to care a lot about whether things were done right or not. Um, now I don't care whether they're done right or not, I just care, care whether they're done right or not. So when I was teaching at BT, it meant a lot to me when people were doing things wrong. Um, and now when I'm working, when I'm coaching, when I'm teaching, the agenda isn't mine. The agenda is a combination of the scrum alliances and the people in the room. So there will be times when I will say, this is what scrum says, if you like it, fine, if you don't, fine, if you think it'll work, fine, if you don't think it'll work, fine. But it's funny because I still see people in training courses just this past week, but people who really get quite about the fact that they can't do it properly and quite angry about it and quite really frustrated and quite upset not not like I'm not talking floods of tears but I'm talking about quite animated about the fact yeah we can't do it we can't and then people get I can't change these people I can't so there is an element of that you know you have to look at the battles that you can win mm-hmm. and you've got to take it a smaller step at a time and don't don't lose your job or your mind over it mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, to an extent, when you're immersed in it, like we were at BT, you do, you, you do get completely, because you can see no other way. You, you've got no other perspective. But sometimes, I suppose now, how I've changed is that I've got a bit more perspective about having seen failures and successes that it's not always going to work. And you're not always going to change the people you want to change. I remember who I was talking to you about this the other day, and this might, this might come across really 
cynical or negative maybe, but I remember saying, having a conversation actually between one or all of us, when we all used to work at BT, about how I can't understand how a company that was as badly run and as bureaucratically burdened as BT was could make a billion pounds profit in a quarter. I just couldn't understand that. <laughs> yeah. uh, because we were working in there and we knew how badly organised it was and how many failed projects there were. And, but having spent 15 years going from company to company, almost every company that I've been at is terribly run with loads of bureaucracy and poor mm. processes. It's not uncommon, no. And they're all making profit. Yeah. And so no matter how bad your process is, it seems that you know, the world isn't going to end. That company's world isn't going to end. Oh, okay, we, we have seen a few companies that have gone bust because they were so bad. Yeah. But generally speaking, it's not yeah. going to be the end of the world. So you can afford to be a little bit patient. But that's the enterprise end of it, isn't it? That's where, you know, making money despite yourself, not because of yourself. That's a very different experience to people out there in small and medium enterprises, where the smallest cough means they get a cold and means they're gone, you know. I think it's interesting that there's been so much focus over the... We may have been the cause of this, but on enterprise agility, you know, big stuff done semi-poorly, but it's good enough, you know, in the kingdom of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Um, uh, but uh, compared to real companies on the ground where they've got real heat and real markets, they can't afford that. No. You know, they need to have things done a bit better, a bit more appropriately. So things like safe bug me, just because I think that maybe the best of intentions, as you said, Jeff, you know, not people are definitely well aren't evil or anything like that, but it's just slightly watered down stuff. And for a large company, maybe that would do. But for any real medium-sized company, that could be potentially a bit toxic. You know, there's a balancing act there between how 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 much you have to do at the start, how what's the journey we're on, you know, uh, where are we going with this, you know, do we have to fix that now? Can we leave it to later? You know, and I think that's um, some of the nuances that need to come in coaching that that's difficult to get across in workshops. Or training courses, or even actually as coaches as us, as outsiders. Yeah, yeah. Very difficult. So what's the summary there? This started as a conversation around product ownership. Yeah. yeah. Someone needs to point <coughs> into this conversation and guide it back to the facilitation. <laughs> well, I mean, one of the. One of the things that we talked about storytelling, I always say a good product owner can write a good story, a great product owner tells a good story. Yeah. And we oh, talked about being able to tell a good story. Yeah. The culture of an organisation is made up of the stories that we repeatedly tell, and you know, that, that's yeah. what sums up that organisation and the way that yeah. they work, is the stories that people generally tell about how things get done. Yeah. And product owners are in a great position to be able to shape that. Yeah. Not just from a product evolution, but from an organisational cultural evolution. Uh, what are the stories that we want to be able to tell in two or three years' time? Yeah. What, are we, what are the stories that we want our products to be able to tell about us? Yeah. What are the stories we want our users and our customers and our consumers to be able to tell about us? And then help make those reality. Yeah. yeah. No, but I think that if that can come from the business, in inverted commas, the people that are actually caring about our customers rather than an IT person and that's always going to be a stronger message. And in general, that ent the entire industry, beyond that anything, the blurring of the lines between business and technology. Yeah, yeah. IT is not a call centre putting beige, compact computers 
into bloody call centers, you know. Yeah. Technology is now an integral part of the business and the business is an integral part of the technology, you know. It, it, um, they're, they're interwoven, they're the same thing, and sort of blending those two worlds together, I think. One, that transition's interesting, but also building those roles, those product people, essentially as well. Yeah. How's that? That's good. I like it. Product, product ownership podcast. Should I say that one drive? Product ownership podcast. So we, we shall thank Nigel. Thanks again, Nigel. It's nice thank to be you. in Bristol thank again with you, Nigel. Love to see you. Love to see you guys. Good see to you again soon. See you coming. I hope to see you soon.